Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers Podcast. Well, I seem to be in the news this week. Again? Um, Second week again. running, Andrew. <laughs> right. Yes, all around documents and the need for more openness and transparency about documents. And I think a rather sinister development, which I discovered through subject access requests. These are requests you can get for your personal data, which shows that they might been... be listening, Andrew. Shh. Have you well, checked I know. the pile of books? The... I'm sure I saw someone with a trilby. <laughs> <laughs> the like microphones everywhere well i know well i mean that's one more lot lot of listeners for us for the podcast i'm sure they're listening to the podcast oh, they're no, getting I mean, pleasure. we are rushing so far ahead we need to go really slowly because basically this is the week of here we go loudygate hashtag loudygate where andrew has discovered he's being spied upon um which is an incredible development and really quite sinister um but I wanted to take people back to maybe one of the reasons this is happening to you. Uh, we've got a bit of time. A lot of people won't have heard the very first episode. Um, obviously, you're doing other work on Prince Andrew, for example. But I think this all started really when you started digging into to, to Lord Mountbatten. Um, do you want to give us a very quick sort of upsum of what you found, what you weren't able to get, what your suspicions are? How you got yourself at war with the establishment? Yeah, well, this goes back five years. I began researching a biography of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten in 2016. The book actually came out in 2019. And um, I, wrote, I found several things. Um, 
This, of course, Mountbatten had been the last viceroy of India. He was closely related to the royal family. He'd been last, the uh, chief of the defence staff. Um, but I think the big disclosure was to discover some FBI files uh, with interviews going back to the 1940s with people uh, upset about his appointment as, as Supreme Allied Commander in Southeast Asia because they said not only was he bisexual, uh, uh, but he was also a paedophile. And this was supported by my research. I interviewed two boys who were abused by him in 1977 when they were 16. And actually, since then, a third boy has come forward and is suing uh, the government in Belfast, uh, a man called Arthur Smith. Uh, and indeed, my two characters are also suing uh, the, the Irish um, government, Northern Ireland government. Uh, uh, but what I discovered was having asked for more of these files, having quoted the numbers, uh, the FBI told me that they'd been destroyed. Now, it seemed odd to have files from the 1940s, some retained and some not. And I was told they'd, when I asked when they'd been destroyed, I was told um, after you asked for them. And this suggests to me that under Section 27 of the Freedom of Information Act, anything that affects relations with another country can be exempt. I mean, normally it means that they're not released, but it's clear that the British government asked for these files to be destroyed. They didn't know they existed. I then had further problems. So, for example, I uh, had confirmation that the car logs uh, going into Classyborn, Mountbatten's home in the west of Scotland, where he, west of Ireland, where he abused these boys, uh, existed. This was the security detail that kept details of who was coming, uh, and this would reveal the where who who people were who were coming, and I think would have revealed that one of the cars might have belonged to a man called William McGrath, who was part of a, a paedophile ring. Uh, uh, but they refused to release these car logs from 1977 on the grounds that they related to the murder, which was two years later, which seems an odd thing. This is, the, then this asked, is when, uh, when Mountbatten was killed by the IRA. Was, yeah, exactly. And then in, I asked for all the files on Mountbatten's murder. They're all over, even though it's 40 years ago, still closed. And one has to ask why they closed. And they said, because the investigation is still ongoing. Now, uh, two people were charged. One person was convicted, went to prison and was released under the Good Friday Agreement many years ago. So I think it's very hard to argue that this is an ongoing investigation. So time and time again, when one gets these sort of excuses put up to prevent us really getting to what really happened. Uh, and it does raise questions about Mountbatten's murder. One of the things that came out of my book was that his uh, security was reduced uh, in 1979, even though there was an enhanced threat the previous year, there had been an attempt to put a bomb on his small sailing boat. Uh, and that was indeed how he was killed. And Do you think that was maybe connected to the fact that he didn't want security because of his private life? Things he was getting. Yes, into. he didn't certainly want a security detail around him, but there's no reason because it allowed because he his 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 paedophile activities largely took place in Ireland. But I think. Um, uh, you know, protecting his boat uh, wouldn't have affected his own uh, per his personal security. So that is a very odd decision. The other odd thing was that uh, a military policeman who I interviewed said that he produced a security audit identifying the gaps in security a month before he died. And this report was ignored and he was posted to Hong Kong immediately. So it seemed to me that people were almost opening the door uh, or letting this happen, and one has to ask, you know, why? Why was that? Um, so I think there's also still a lot then of you got ones. dragged into a, you instigated a lot of expensive legal action, uh, which cost you a great deal of money, 
which got you some documents, but not everything you wanted. That's, and that was really the next big stage of this, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the personal diaries and letters of Mountbatten and his wife had been bought with public monies for about £5 million pounds, uh, to be open. Um, and when I asked to see them, they'd been seen by previous historians, I was told that they were closed under a ministerial direction. They weren't able to produce this ministerial direction. Uh, and I appealed this to the information commissioner who ruled that this material should be released. It took some time. Uh, in fact, Southampton University, who had the material, were actually had instituted against them contempt of court proceedings the first time this has ever happened in freedom of information. Uh, but um, the decision in November 2019 was that the stuff should be made public. Uh, the cabinet office who had somehow got themselves in on, on the back of this ministerial direction and the Southampton University appealed that decision. The case was heard in November 2021. But shortly before the hearing, 33,000 pages of material was dumped on the Internet. 99.9% of the material, the stuff I've been asking for, too late for my book, but useful for other historians. And so we had a hearing, but a hearing which was really just about a few limited redactions. So I think this was a victory that was the largest ever release, say, of FOI material. They'd released the stuff which they'd kept closed for a decade, which if it had been bought by an American university would have been opened to the to, to researchers in 2011. But I think this is where my problems began. Uh, and the monitoring of me has gone back to uh, this court case, my attempts to raise uh, money to fight it, because this case, this appeal was brought and against me. why has this come out this week, Andrew? Because I, I've known you for ages. We've never talked about this before. They opened the newspaper about six days ago, and you're all over it, saying you're being spied upon. So what did you discover? Well, I just, I mean, I have known about this for a while, these subject access requests. I didn't really do anything about them. And it was only talking to the Index on Censorship who asked me to do a piece on uh, on the case that I mentioned this. And so I wrote a piece for them. Uh, the piece came out of the internet last week and, and has generated a lot of interest. Uh, and that is where I mentioned this monitoring of me as a historian, which goes way beyond my research. It, it goes back to court cases that I've had, employment tribunals, uh, uh, applications for uh, public appointments in other government departments, which have been shared with the cabinet office, uh, uh, the crowdfunding, a whole series of things which have nothing to do with, with my professional life. And, you know, the only inference you can draw from this is that they're trying to collect material that could be used to smear me, possibly to be used in the court case. But I've had uh, another subject access request from yes, came yesterday for the period up to June this year. And they're still monitoring me. They, they claim to have so much material, 650 hours worth of work to try and recover this that um, uh, I've had to put in just limited applications for six-month periods. This is remarkable. But, you know, this is, I mean, and again, I, I tease you a lot about you being a bit of a toff, which you are, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. being a member of the establishment, which you were. Um, yep. But again, a lot of people probably don't know, you know, you've run, you, you've, you've run to be a Tory MP, I think, once. Yep. You've been a member of the party, perhaps you still are. You no, know, you're a great not. believer in the monarchy. Um, yep. You are not a natural rebel, and yet, it seems that all the way to the cabinet office, people are looking at you as some kind of dangerous <laughs> force in our society that needs to be monitored. I mean, I don't. Well, I'm very flattered. Um, 
Exactly. And, but I think that I'm not the only one. I suspect if other people put in subject access requests, they'd find the same sort of monitoring. Um, but I think, you know, this was just dirty tricks with the, with the, um, uh, the legal, the, the legal case because they didn't like it. You know, they were shown up to have lied. I mean, one of the other things that comes out of these disclosures is the lying to parliament by the cabinet office, lying to MPs in parliamentary questions, uh, and even lying to the cabinet secretary about the case. Um, all exposed in these documents. The, the cabinet office put out a statement saying there's no truth in this. That's it. But I've got hundreds of pages of evidence to show a chapter and verse of the way they behaved. And I think they need to be held to account. Well, you know, in a there minute need we're going to be questions, you know, by the media, questions by parliamentarians. And I think some heads should roll. Well, it's yes, you say that. We're going to speak in a minute to uh, one of Britain's most distinguished reporters and writers, Michael Crick, uh, who's very hot on freedom of information. And he actually tweeted two days ago, I don't know if you saw this, Andrew. He says the Commons Public Administration Committee should investigate what what Lowney is saying. Lowney is saying they should summon the top civil servant Alex Chisholm and give him the bollocking of his life. <laughs> yeah, well, good old Michael. I, I absolutely agree. You know, I don't have a great deal of faith in MPs to really put the boot in. I'm sort of relying on the press to do that. Um, but you know, Where does again, the stop. Who who do you think is really saying do this? Is it the Cabinet Office? Is it? The prime minister is it the palace? Well, I think it's a mixture. I mean, this has been driven by the cabinet office uh, and uh, presumably the uh, the knowledge and management department there, which sounds very Orwellian, who deal with FOI requests. Um, but you know, the people at the top, people like Alex Chisholm, who's the permanent secretary, people like Simon Case, who's the cabinet secretary, should be getting a, a grip on this and saying this is not the sort of society we want to live in. I mean, I've long argued that we live in a banana republic just in the way we deal with our records. But I mean, this is going, you know, back into 1984 in a very Orwellian sort of picture of Britain. Rishi Sunak came to power saying that he would bring integrity and decency into public life. And here's a very good example of someone, has, as you say, who poses no threat to society being monitored. Uh, and this is only the material that I'm being given. Uh, I, there's a lot of material which I've questioned, which I'm not being shown. And time and time again, I'm getting, for example, uh, FOI requests, which are being administratively, they said, by mistake, we administratively shut these down. So it's only by me pressing time and time again to get this material that it's been produced. And these are statutory obligations to produce this material under FOI. Um, you know, so I think it's really shocking. You know, the government, uh, the only way we're going to trust our governments is if they behave with integrity and openness. And I'm afraid this one is not. Well, have to, having said that, we listened to you saying all that. I have to say, I wish you had become an MP because we need, that's, exa <laughs> that's exactly what we need to hear. Yeah, well, I know. I think it's very sad that public historians and, and uh, members of parliament have not risen to this. I've written a lot of articles. I've gone public. I've just done a radio interview now. And I sort of feel I'm whistling in the wind. No one seems to care about this issue, but it goes to the heart of the relationship of the electorate and the governing uh, governing elites. Gosh, well, before we go to Michael, I, I completely forgotten to do my favourite part of the entire show, which is going through the reviews and uh, charts and letting people know and thanking people for listening and watching. Um, uh, and I think actually somewhere here on my screen, I've got um, some cool new comments. Do you want to hear them? Oh, I always love our comments. I love hearing from our, our listeners. Uh, well, uh, Rebecca Day thought the last programme was fascinating. 
that was on the Mitfords, which um, I had a fantastic conversation with Laura. Very different kind of story to the one we're doing today, but really interesting. Spoken Insight. I'm not quite sure who that is. Favorite podcast so far? Um, Christina Ralph has joined us and followed us. She, she said, uh, brilliant podcast. Keep going. Great discussions. Um, and we've actually we've broken into new territory, Andrew. We're now on charts in, would you believe, Holland, Finland and Norway. I mean, we're not Gosh. topping the charts, but we're in there. Uh, we're, you know, well, there's people, always next week. Yes. People are listening to us or watching us in these places. Um, so, Hudenacht or Hudentag, or is that not sure my Dutch is really very good? But if you're listening in Holland, um, you're very welcome and please keep listening. Um, and we really like the suggestions that have been made. The Mitford was, was a suggestion from a listener, and that proved to be really, really interesting and different from the stuff, stuff we've been doing, but but still really new insight into history. Yeah, I love these book programs because a, I get to read cool new books and learn stuff, but um. Uh, and you meet some really fascinating people. I mean, Laura, I just love her take on the world generally, actually, but especially on the Mitfords. All right. Well, maybe we should return from self-congratulatory mode to uh, our righteous fury mode. Here it is again, Lownigate, hashtag. Um, and should we see what Michael has to say? Yes. Uh, it's always very interesting. Let's do it. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, thank you for joining us in our little world of scandals. Um, and I think we have to say, welcome to Lownigate. <laughs> well, I was astonished to read about it. And uh, I'm glad to see it's uh, had some decent coverage this morning in The Guardian. And I've been encouraging broadcasters to uh, get onto it. Um, oh, uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous story, yeah. Well, it's part of a sort of wider thing. I mean, you've been dealing with these issues for 40 years, really. Uh, and I think that's why we've, we were so keen to have you on. Um, well, not I mean, really. I mean, I, I have not in a way that you have. I mean, you have the commitment you've put into getting hold of the Batten papers is, I mean, you know, the financial commitment. <laughs> well, way, beyond, the way beyond I've, anything I've known of any other journalist. I mean, <laughs> I mean, okay, well, there may be journalists who this podcast will be successful. <laughs> right. yeah, and, no, I've, got, I've, got, I've got some really good news for you. We've we've sold five books at our bookshop. So four pound fifty coming to you. Or sadly that I bought two of them. So right. I'm not sure if the yeah, economics well, we, of that work out. But um, they're still going through Amazon. But I mean, you've got a big campaign at the moment, Michael, uh, to to find out who the sort of future uh, the candidates are for the po political parties. That's very interesting because I mean, you say that the selection process is very secretive in the states as the primaries, but here it's all done behind the scenes. I mean, that is very useful. Yeah, operation. it's become. I mean, I've been doing it now for what about uh, sort of twelve, thirteen, fourteen months. Um, and it's become my hobby, my uh, obsession. It takes up about half my day, you know, and uh, I make no money from it apart from the occasional article. And um, I've, I've basically I've, I've always been fascinated in the whole process of, of selection for parliamentary candidates. And of course, you yourself, uh, Andrew, were a, a candidate once, weren't you, in Monkland's? Um, what thirty or forty years ago? Forty and years ago? Oh, no, thirty years ago. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm making you older than you are. <laughs> sorry, I should. <laughs> and I was a very against young John Smith, weren't you? You were against John Smith? No, he right? was next door. A guy right. called Tom Clark. Oh yes, Tom Clark. Yes, uh, former development minister. Anyway, and uh, you know, I did think of standing for parliament myself once, and I've always found the whole process fascinating. I mean, every selection. 
there's some story behind the scenes. There's often a fix or a fiddle, um, more slightly more in the Labour Party, I think, than in the Conservatives. But there's a fair number of fixes and fiddles there as well. Accidents, you know, people applying at the last minute or, uh, you know, uh, making a great speech. Uh, and often when MPs go for these things, uh, the one they expect to get, they don't get. And then, uh, often a few days later, they get, they suddenly get one they don't expect to get. Um, and, um, it is the turning point, I think, in any political career. It's the moment you become, I think, a professional politician in a way, if you're, if you're chosen for a winnable seat. Sorry to interrupt, Michael. Can I drag us back a little bit to where we started? Um, this MP stuff is fascinating, of course. But I mean, you're such a, a, a great student of power in this country and how it works and the constitution. And I mean, do you think what, what's happening to Andrew and maybe also a few other straws in the wind? means we're getting a little bit more authoritarian in our country, a little bit less open to people like Andrew and other journalists, people like yourself, just trying to find stuff out. Well, I think, uh, I mean, Andrew's case is shocking. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, keen to, to hear more about it. Um, but the the uh, I, I think there's always been these streaks in uh, in this country. I mean, I myself have never done much of this sort of, uh, you know, up, up at the coalface dealing with the Official Secrets Act and all of that myself. I mean, you know, most of my time as a, a television reporter, I was just doing day to day news stories and you haven't got time to put in applications under freedom of information and so on. I mean, I did do that, but not in a huge way. Um, and uh, at least we have freedom of information now. And you can sometimes, if you know how to do it, and you you know you're persistent, and it's the persistence persistence it seems to me that's crucial. And of course, Andrew, you've shown persistence in spades, and uh, and uh, in your case, a lot of uh, money as well. But um, you can get stuff out of the system, and other other writers and historians have, have found that the real problem I find these days is data protection. I mean, the irony is, of course, that. Uh, it's the data protection laws that enabled Nigel Farage to find all about his Coots uh, bank account, uh, which is an absolute scandal, in my view. And, and that is clearly going on with lots of other people as well. But at the same time, data protection is used as a reason to deny journalists uh, and uh, historians and, and anybody else information. Uh, that you would have easily got hold of um, uh, 25 years ago. I mean, I remember, I mean, I've been writing books now for 40 years and exactly 40 years, actually. And the whole of a writing of a book is a totally different operation to what it, or researching a book is totally different operation to what it was 40 years ago. Um, and partly because of computers and the internet age and so on. But I mean, I remember when I wrote a book about uh, Jeffrey Archer uh, in the early 90s. And there was a lot of controversy about Archer, about whether he'd gone to Oxford or not, Oxford University. And so I rang up the press office at Oxford and a very helpful woman uh, came on the phone. And I said, look, I need to establish this. Was he a student at Oxford or was he not? And she said, well, uh, no problem. Uh, I'll just go and get his file. And she came back about three minutes later and she said, right, I've got the file here. I said, what do you want to know? She said, she said, what do you want to know? I said, well, can you read it all out? (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Those were the days. (laughs) And I I quietly pressed a button and recorded it for note-taking purposes, just to make sure I didn't make any mistakes. And it was all in there, all the lies that had led to him getting into Oxford. 
and uh, very helpful it was too. I wrote, I wrote a book about Michael Heseltine. You know, Shrewsbury School said, oh, yes, come and see us. And they just opened up his files and, you know, there it all was. Um, now, of course, you can't get anywhere near a lot of that stuff. Um, and, I mean, you know, um, roll on to 2010, and I did uh, a profile, a dual profile it was for Newsnight, of the Miliband brothers, because they were both um, standing against each other for the Labour leadership. And I thought it would make a nice little dual profile. And, um, and of course, the, the, uh, the, the sort of question, it was always said about them that David had got a first, um, uh, but Ed had only got a 2-1, I think. And I thought, well, I better check that. So I ring up Oxford University. Um, and um, they said, oh, no, we can't tell you that. So, you know, it's private information, data protection and all that. And I said, look, these guys, uh, the Miliband brothers, want me, an ordinary voter and everybody else, they want us to employ them as their prime minister. That's why they're running for Labour leader. We've a right to know this. Oh, no, not under the data protection uh, laws. Because they used to be published. I mean, they used to be published in the newspapers. And indeed, I remember as soon as I got my degree, uh, which was a slightly surprising result, I immediately went out and bought a copy of the University Gazette. So I had it on the <laughs> Show record. it to your mum. <laughs> exactly. And they used to be in all the newspapers, as you say, and not just – and the Times, most of August, was spent printing uh, uh, degree results from universities all over the country who presumably had to pay for the service. Um, and local papers used to publish your O-levels and your A-levels. And indeed, I, you know, I found – uh, quite a lot about Archer th- through that, but anyway, you can't get the, uh, the the you couldn't get the you can't get the de- people's degree results from universities anymore. Even though we're paying on that, we're still uh, well, we're sort of paying for them to get degrees. It's a lot more complicated these days, of course. Um, anyway, so I got in touch with the uh, d- data, the, the um, Freedom of Information Data Protection Registrar, who at that guy um, was Chris. Um, Thing be jig. He used to. Um, he was the guy at the BBC. Had been the guy at the BBC for whom I had to negotiate my pay, and he later became a Lib Dem uh, candidate in um, Chippenham, I think it was. Anyway, I, I got on to him personally, and he said, "Yeah, this is an outrage. I'm going to, uh, you know, um, issue an edict or something. You know, um, a, a ruling that you know, degree results for public figures are, um, uh, you know, should be should be given out, and." Um, uh, and, and that sort of resolved it. But then what I forgot to do, when I left the BBC, I forgot to keep a copy of this. And I had to ring him years later, and he'd left uh, the job, and he couldn't remember it. And so that ruling, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's still there. But it, 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 um, but it is an illustration of how much harder a lot of yes. uh, research is when it comes to these kind of uh, supposed uh, privacy issues. And I think that we've got to have an understanding in this country that um, privacy doesn't, you know, shouldn't apply to people who are asking us as voters to employ them. And that's why I think, you know, that comes back to the candidate's point, that, whole, that, that this process is incredibly secretive. It, well, particularly in the the worst, actually, ironically, are those great uh, believers in freedom of information and transparency, the Liberal Democrats. Uh, I mean, they have a rule that if you try and become a candidate for the Liberal Democrats, you are not allowed to say publicly who... Uh, your opponents were or what the vote was. Now, the Labour Party, it all leaks out one way or another. The Conservative Party are very secretive. And yet these elections, as one of you said, are the equivalent of American primary elections. And in effect, if you are, you know, chosen as the Conservative candidate for West Suffolk, as Nick Timothy was 
uh, I think it was on Sunday, uh, the former Theresa May uh, advisor. You are the MP for West Suffolk for as long as you want to be, really. And, you know, he'll be there for another 20, 30 years if he wants to be, and if boundaries don't change. And so effectively, the the, the few hundred people that gather uh, for, a, for a meeting like that, and it's, you know, those figures are a lot smaller than they used to be, are electing the local member of parliament for a very long time. And therefore, that process ought to be open. Um, and uh, and the other one that gets me is the appointments to the House of Lords. That's even more secretive. And there you're getting you are. I mean, this woman, Charlotte Owen, Owens or Owen, who was appointed at the age of 29 the other day. Uh, you know, she could be there for another 70 years. And uh, so, you know, we're supposed to be a democracy. But these these all of these processes do need a lot more uh, light shed upon them. And well, that talk, is talking of that, talking of that, Michael, you, you yourself, of course, um, people might not know, wrote a biography of Nigel Farage, a very divisive British politician for our non-British audience, um, who was um, recently in the middle of another really big scandal about access to information and the kind of secretive manoeuvring, not so much of the state, but of committees within big organisations who now transpires have been sort of taking away bank accounts and trying to kind of hurt people whose politics they don't like. And it's not just Nigel Farage. It turns out that gun clubs are now saying that they've run into trouble and all sorts of people who, you know, you may you may or may not like them, but do we really want to live in a country where they are suddenly kind of cast out from like normal society or economic function because of some no, committee. And I, I'm all with Farage. I mean, I disagree with him on Europe. I'm a Remainer. And I certainly disagree with him over his adulation for Trump, which I think is completely bonkers and he and Trump's bonkers. Um, but uh, on this, I am at one with him. And I um, uh, and it's all the more important, actually, in the modern world where you can't use cash in all sorts of circumstances. You know, you go into a, coffee, a cafe for a cup of coffee and they, they insist you pay by credit card these days. And a lot of people can't, of course, already can't get bank accounts or credit card accounts. Well, if other people are going to be deprived of them because of decisions uh, by people like Coots and uh, and Nat West, um, then uh, it has very, very serious uh, civil liberties implications. Um, and actually. The scandal isn't isn't just that it coots and that West. Uh, well, I, I'm not going to use that horrid word. They uh, tried to end his bank account. Well, they did end his bank account, but that he then couldn't get. Um, he tried another nine banks, and none of them would have him either. Um, now it seems to be resolving itself at the moment, and it looks like coots have relented. And goodness me, the, the whole episode will be a model for. Uh, you know, crisis management courses and, and public relations courses and a model of how not to handle. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. 
that's the story. I mean, that the, and, and the irony is, if you read the report that uh, Nigel Farage got from them under his subject access request, there's actually a paragraph in there where he says, um, I mean, I've got the one a version of it there. Uh, it, 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 they actually say that if we uh, uh, end his bank account, he will no doubt um, make a great issue of this <laughs> and use, use his platforms to publicise it. Well, by golly, he did in a way that neither of them could have expected. And, and the cover-up I is mean, always worse. stupidity. What? Sorry? Well, the cover-up is always worse. So why did yeah. they say it's crass stupidity? Why did they do this? And do you think that actually more members of the board should go, having well, supported um, the managing director there? Well, it's a slightly... I mean, a slightly... Uh, well, I, I think um, uh, they, the the members of the end the NatWest board... Um, yeah, I think they should be thinking, and the, the non-executive members particularly. I mean, I you know, if, what's the point of having non-executive members if they don't get a grip on the management? And what's astonishing about this story is how slow they were. I mean, it, it broke, you know, more than a month ago, didn't it? The end of end of June, I think. And uh, it took them ages to deal with it. And you could see all along the way what was going to happen. I mean, I think when you get to our kind of age, you do get a smell for stories and what's likely to happen next and whether... Uh, you know, so and so is a wrong one, and so on. And um, you could see with this one uh, the way it was going. My suspicion is, and this may, have, this may, this is sort of touches a little bit on your area, Andrew. My suspicion is, my big question is, um, given the were, were Coots responding to a complaint from somebody very one of the very important customers, um, and it just seems to me that. The way they treated Farage and that comes out of these documents was way over the top. And by the way, it was the, the research was dreadful. I mean, if they'd rung me as Farage's biographer and just said, and said, well, what do you make of all this? I would have said, well, that, that allegation there is rubbish. Forget about that one. This one here is quite serious, you know, but, um, the, it was, you know, it was, it was sort of school, schoolboy or schoolgirl standard of research. <laughs> And, 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 but I wonder whether whether somebody important, maybe even the king, uh, whether somebody important, very important, complained to Coots about Farage, and they then they felt because of this person's importance. Uh, I mean, I'm not normally a great conspiracist. Though when I read about your case, Andrew, it makes me more of a conspiracist. <laughs> but but um, I, I just uh, I just wonder there. Do I you think there's still this? I, Sorry? Culture of deference. There's still this culture of deference that people will it, it, put in that position will just, you know, kowtow to people in. Well, I think there's a, there's a lot less deference in this country today, uh, which is good in it, mostly good. Um, but I think there may be there are there are, a, there are occasions. Um, and when it comes to the royal family, uh, they're still one of them where we all bow and scrape and, uh, uh, and cower and, and do, you know, meet their demands. And um, you see that, of course, over the... Uh, I mean, that was why the spider letters were so important and uh, that Charles used to write to government. Well, he probably... I don't know if he carried on writing them, but you remember that that all blew up about yes. um, 10 years ago. And indeed, I, <laughs> it was... I was sort of... Um, I remember my... Ed I was on Channel 4 News at the time and the, um, the editor um, said, right, Michael, I want you to... Get, uh, Charles is visiting... Uh, Marks and Spencer's tomorrow in Oxford Street. I want you to doorstep him about these spider letters. 
And I thought, oh, God, blimey. And I was working on something else at the time. And I thought, what a waste of time, I thought. And I sort of resisted. And he said, no, nope, you've got to go and do it. And I thought, oh, all right then. And so I went down there. And I, I, and it was the big Oxford Street branch. And um, I couldn't believe it. There was, there was clearly, uh, there were people around. Uh, and clearly somebody was visiting. Uh, but there was no other press where we had it. You know, nobody else had thought. I thought, crikey. And <laughs> nobody tried to stop us. And so I doorstepped Charles as he came in. Uh, Prince Charles, as he then was, of course, when he, he got out of his big car and sidled up to him and um, and, and said, uh, you know, they were pretty soft questions. Again, you know, my deference. I didn't call him sir. Uh, at least I don't think I did. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and his press secretary, uh, what was her name? Uh, Christina, uh, uh, Christina something or other. She um, uh, sidled up to me. She came up to me and sort of elder, elbowed me aside. And and she l- lifted, uh, I had a microphone with a furry top. And she lifted the furry top off the microphone, looked at it as if it was a turd and, and sort of threw it on the ground. <laughs> and I saw, and I'd known that, that it would I said to the cameraman, I think something might happen here. Keep the shot as wide as you can. Uh and <laughs> which he did. And so it's all there. <laughs> and and then uh I mean I never I know you never answered any of my questions, of course. And it was just, you know, you were the you, you were doing it just to show that he, you know, he, he had questions to answer. And um I then uh, there was then a big debate within ITN because, as you know, Channel Four News is made by ITN, which also provides news programs to ITV and Channel Five. And uh, there's always been a strong royalist streak to ITN's uh, coverage in, in over the years. And uh, there was a big debate in ITN about what they were going to do with this material. So <laughs> I started tweeting about it. I said, "Oh, I've just had." this amazing incident on uh you know we'll be putting it up online a bit later um and um uh, and then and then um i went to back to westminster and various uh journalist colleagues said well where's your where's the stuff with you and charles it's still not applied still not gone up there yet and i said uh, no i've noticed that too why don't you um uh, you know ask a few questions online <laughs> which which sort of forced my lot at channel four news to put it up and um uh, the uh, but there was a big row at ITN because the ITV people said, "Oh, this will ruin our relations with the palace. We'll never get access to uh, Charles or anybody ever again." And uh, the editor of Channel Four News said, "Well, we don't have any relations with the palace, so we don't care." <laughs> and went ahead and just just did it anyway. But sorry, I've rambled far from uh, far from is, the path. Is that a case? I mean, do you, do you feel that there's sort of sweetheart deals done? If you give us good coverage, we'll give you access to important royals. And if you uh, upset us, then um, I'm afraid we're going to deny access to, you know, the Princess of Wales. Does that go yeah, on? I mean, I I think that the um, – I mean, I've, I've never done many royal stories personally because it, it doesn't interest me that much apart from, I mean, the, the odd occasion. Um, and indeed, there was one surprising occasion when I did I did get access, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But the the the, the I mean, the rules that um, the royal family impose on coverage, and you know, the, uh, and what you're allowed to do if you're a broadcaster, um, and the fact, for instance, that the film what was it sixty eight sixty nine film Royal Family um, uh, is is uh, no longer shown, is it? 
exactly and um and, and the coronation i mean you that's limited what you can show and yet people could have their cameras out and and record it anyway yeah and the the, the there is i th- and indeed that was why the whole thing about um you know uh, what's his name? The, the the diana interview and martin bashir and so on was 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 done had to sort of bypass that kind of and there was a woman inside the bbc who used to base i mean phil will know probably more about this than i do but the the woman inside the bbc wasn't there in our day who whose basic job was to liaise with the palace and really she was working more for the palace than she was for the bbc as so far as i could gather oh, well you, but talk, about, you talk about deference yeah I, I mentioned this in an earlier episode of our show yeah. i made a, a big biography for itv about diana when I worked in Brook Lapping, which, as you know, yeah. had a, had and still has a reputation for doing very serious, fair-minded reporting. Um, and we were doing it on behalf of ITV. Now, in making the show, we wanted to interview Jonathan Dimbleby and ask him some pretty pointed questions about his role in getting certain stories out about Diana that were not particularly nice. He was, at that time, ITV's main political interviewer. Can you imagine how hard that was? Plus, as you say, there were people in ITV who were on the phone to the palace and getting calls directly about our show. And we were, I mean, I can't say too much, but we were under quite a lot of pressure to kind of pull our punches. I'm not saying that was Dimbleby doing it, but it was people at the palace leaning on ITV. I know that for certain. And this was only 20 years ago. And in the previous generation, when I worked at ITN in the 80s, you know, it was all Alistair Burnett and he would be regularly uh, writing... um, uh, you know, he would do he would do books about them as well um, as part of as well as into doing quite interviews. Yeah, from it was time very to time. incestuous and it was really yeah. wrong and it wasn't real journalism. It no. was really nothing like it. Uh, and so Andrew comes along and wants to ask some really tough questions about yeah. potential serious criminal acts by yeah. a very senior member of the royal family. And look what happens to Andrew. He's a gate. Yeah. <laughs> the, the one the only the, the one one royal story I did do, which I've sort of quite proud of although it wasn't really my work is um my friend gordon marsden who uh later became a labor mp but he was editor of history today magazine for about 12 years and he had this great scoop that he'd got of um written by a, a historian it was about 90 then i forget the historian's name but it was all about um how uh george v had been euthanized um in and and you probably know the story very well, better than I do, Andrew. And but he basically his doctor had bumped him off. Of, he was dying anyway, but he bumped him off a few hours early with some drug or other. And the reason given, according to the doctor's diaries, was to um, make sure that it was announced in the respect. I can't remember the phrase now, but some something like the respectable morning newspapers rather than the um, you know the lesser afternoon um, papers. Yeah, yeah, evening you papers. Had to go to the Times. Yeah, and um, the um, uh, and I thought this is, I mean, you know, Gordon let me have a preview of this, and 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 um, and I thought this is amazing, but I thought, well, I can't really, you know, and the and the historian didn't actually have the copies of the diaries, so I had to apply to uh, the, the, I don't know, wherever Windsor Park, well, the Royal Archives, I think. Yeah, yes. and, and they were in possession of the family Reed's diaries, I think they were. Yeah, and I and I was amazed that they said yes, you can come along and look at them. But you can't photograph them or film them, and I went along to uh, Windsor Palace, uh, Windsor Castle, and did so, and, uh, and there it was. Um, and uh, you know, I don't think we would have done the story without actually seeing the the hard evidence. Um, and it uh, it was a you know you've got you've got a, you've got a splash of the te- the telegraph splash the next morning, and, uh, and it's it's rumbled along ever since. But um, 
So they're not always, you know, maybe they felt that by then, which was sort of 1986, maybe they felt that 50 years on, um, that was a that was a sort of secret that that could be uh, uh, let out. Um, where, but um, the, um, uh, I mean, a, a good person to talk about this, I've actually seen it from both sides, uh, is, is Stuart Purvis, who, you know, would have been involved at ITN in the 1980s in a lot of that uh, royal coverage. I mean, he made his name on doing the royal wedding and things like that um, in 81. And now, of course, he's, um, well, he's done a rival, you've done he rival books, haven't you, on Burgess, and, and all fun. sorts of other things like that. And he's sort of, he's like me, he's sort of later in life, enjoying himself doing a bit of this and a bit of that, and a book here and a bit of research there. And um, he, he uh, uh, you, you know, will 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 have seen uh, the um, the amazing, the still extraordinary secrecy of the whole thing, but also uh, the the extraordinary deference that um, uh, journalists, um, even to this day, I think, show towards um, <laughs> all things royal. Well, there's one you said other area which we've talked about. Sorry, sorry, Andrew. There's one no. other area which you've talked about, which I want to get to. We've only got about nine or ten minutes left. Um, you've talked about. In, in the context of this banking scandal, a thing called, I think it's your phrase, illiberal liberalism. And if we're talking in this show now about the difficulty of getting to the truth, I think you might want to apply that to our own profession. Um, we talked about COVID last week um, with Matt Ridley, and it's quite clear that a lot of journalists and a lot of media organizations didn't want to pursue a certain story because it was seen to be favorable to Trump, whatever you think of Trump. Maybe journalists should pursue the story, come what may, and perhaps that's maybe been true of other things. The, the Biden laps, the Biden story about his, the Hunter Biden's laptop, um, and I think there was a hot mic incident. And if you saw it in Australia, they recorded a bunch of Australian journalists from you know the top of the ABC, where I used to work, the public broadcaster, basically saying that they now rather regret not going into this story, and that they, the reason that they didn't go into it was they thought that it was favourable to Donald Trump. And yeah, that, and I maybe, think. Do you think that's think, a factor in our world? I think it's a very big factor in our world, and um, uh, frankly, um, I had a big bust up at Channel Four News uh, in the teens over the way in which I mean, we we got obsessed. It was it was all my story to start with. It was all about election expenses, um, and in in. Uh, parliamentary elections where you've, you've, you've got a spending limit each candidate's got a spending limit and um we started off by looking at the how much the conservatives had spent in the particular by-elections where they were threatened by ukip so clacton and rochester and so on and then at the uh, but it had all actually also originally stemmed actually from the conservative spending in south thanet um where farage was uh trying to become the MP. And they put loads of money into that, way beyond the legal limits. And gradually we built up this picture that Cameron had been terrified about UKIP and therefore basically said, throw the kitchen sink at it. We'll spend as much as we have to on these campaigns. We have to stop UKIP. Um, and I, I said, well, you've got to remember, I've been doing this, these stories, these election expenses stories for 30 years now. And in the old days, it was always Labour that overspent and indeed the Liberal Democrats that overspent. It isn't a conservative thing. And I said, you know, there, are, there will be some Labour campaigns in this general election that we're looking at 2015, which will have overspent. And we should be looking at those as well. And, you know, some of my colleagues just didn't want to know. 
Uh, it didn't fit their narrative. And I just think, uh, yeah, broad broadcasters have been negligent in all sorts of ways. The whole Brexit debate, I'm a Remainer, you know, I'd vote Remain again if I could. Uh, but I just think we never covered, we never gave, we never, uh, uh, understood what was happening because we were all, you know, nearly everybody in the office was Remainers as well. Um, we never went to the places where people were voting for Brexit. And, but, but more than that, we didn't want to be seen to be, uh, you know, giving Brexiters a voice. And indeed, there are broadcasters, colleagues of mine, friends of mine who say, well, we're responsible for what, what happened. Uh, you know, it was it was the BBC and ITV and Channel 4 News that made Farage. We shouldn't have given him all that publicity. And I, and I was I say, no, this is absolutely wrong. Farage, you may not like him. You may not like his methods, uh, but he represents a significant body of British opinion. And it, it would be totally wrong and undemocratic and against our rules, actually, uh, not to reflect um uh, the fact that he was arguing for Brexit at a time when the three big parties, Labour, Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, were, you know, very, very close together uh, on, on this issue and, and, and pro-remaining within the European Union. Um, and I, you know, and I and I actually used to use UKIP. I, you know, I'd go to a by-election, I'd seek out the UKIP candidate as well, because I knew that they had something different to say to compare with the other three. But there are those in broadcasting who felt that was wrong, you shouldn't be giving him a voice, certainly shouldn't be giving him a voice on the immigration issue, they would argue. Again, I think we, we, um, you know, and in a way we added to the, we fueled the, the feelings of those people who feel strongly about Brexit and immigration by not giving them a platform. They felt uh, you know, that this was all part of some liberal metropolitan conspiracy. And in a way, there's, you know, there's a little, there's a bit in what they said on that. And I, I'm, you know, I regard myself as a metropolitan liberal, but I do think, uh, as broadcasters, we had a duty. To I do be, think there's more group uh, think. I do think there's more but, group yeah. think than when I, yeah. than 20 odd years ago. I think there's was, was more variety of views expressed in the production office or a newsroom, actually. Well, the, the, and in uh, politics. Yeah, I think I mean it's true on other issues as well. You know, you you've you know if you discuss things like um, abortion or capital punishment, um, it's sort of amongst all the journalists in the broadcasting office, it's sort of assumed that everybody uh, has liberal views on abortion and and either wants to liberalise the current views or at least keep them, and that anybody who wants to restrict the abortion uh, rules is you know. Uh, at, you know, extreme, and the same. You know, you can't. You, it, very rare that you would have. You know, somebody saying, "Well, actually, shouldn't we be making or exploring the case for capital punishment?" Um, and um, it's uh, it's it, there are certain in, in a uh, in a broadcasting community there are certain liberal assumptions that nobody really questions, and it and it's wrong. And I think we have a duty to. Um, explore all this i mean and i i actually um you know i i complained about what channel 4 news was doing and how we'd become a crusade against brexit and against the government and it didn't do me any good in the end and i'm now and then and now we've now we've got these channels like gb news and talk tv where specific right wing you know they're, they're predominantly right wing very strongly right wing and um uh and i you know i think that ofcom should close them down even no, though I appear on these channels, and they, they don't even pretend to have balance. Do they? It's like the Fox News principle. Well, they don't even pretend yeah. to have balance. 
What, what's interesting is they're the ones who asked me to appear to talk about some of the problems I've had. There's nothing from the liberal media. Yeah. Um, well, you're well, in the Guardian today, Andrew. Yes, I'm in the Guardian. Today. That's the I can't actually think. I, I would have thought on this and on and, and on Mountbatten uh, that I can't see how the liberal media would be. Uh, the be a, you know, I think the liberal media uh, would be as keen on your story as, as anybody else. I think it's probably, you know, they haven't noticed it. Or, I mean, that's the other thing we've got to constantly remember that a lot of these institutes, we don't, you know, there isn't the money in the media that there was. There certainly isn't the money in television, well, or in newspapers. And there isn't the money for people to do the kind of investigations that Phil uh, did loads of. And, you know, and you'd spend months just doing one program. And, you know, you might even announce after a few weeks or a few months that. Actually, the program isn't going to work. You, we can't, you know, the story isn't there or whatever. Yeah, people don't have that freedom these days. They're forced, really, just to oh, go for the we're sounding the like sour, hanging we're, fruit. We're sounding like a bunch of sour old hacks. We are. <laughs> but, which I don't think we are. I, I'm really loving you doing this podcasting thing. And we now really are out of time. But thank you so much, Michael. It's a joy to see you again. Enjoy to see you. Picking against the pricks. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Thanks bye-bye. so much. Yeah, bye-bye. Good old Michael. Well, yeah, I know he's great. I think we could have gone on much longer. So many different areas that we could have explored. That's but, interesting you know. the way the way the conversation went, though, because we started with a in our righteous anger about um, the problems that historians have, and you're having, and the slightly sinister turn to that story, and how hard it is to get to the truth. But the conversation kind of also went round in a bit of a circle to our own profession. How yep. there are factors. Stopping people getting to the truth, or stopping people looking into certain stories based on political prejudice in our own industry, um, which I do think is, is uh, you know, as it came up last week with COVID, um, I think it is really a genuine concern. It is. I mean, there was a piece in the paper this morning by Andrew Neil, former editor of the Sunday Times, on just this. I think, as you say, this group think. Uh, and, you know, we don't have enough mavericks. I mean, we want diversity, for example, in the media. And actually, we have this very homogenous uh, way of thinking, at least, and people come from different backgrounds. And I, I see it myself uh, in publishing. You know, I, I've always done books which go right across the political spectrum, which challenge the orthodoxy. But it's really hard to sell a lot of those books. People want to hear the stories they want to hear and, and they have their since prejudices confirmed. And even on Prince Andrew, there's a story I gave to the papers last week, which was very pro Prince Andrew, uh, his time in special forces. They didn't want it because it didn't fit the narrative that they've created. Uh, and I mean, we've talked in the past about Diana, you know, Lady Diana uh, Spencer, whether, you know, when she was in, they did good stories and then they decided that she was out. And this is slightly frightening. You know, we should be reporting what actually happens rather than what we would like to happen. Well, that's right. And you follow a story um, because it's in the public interest and because it's interesting and you do it without fear or favour. And that's how I was taught my journalism at the BBC. Um, well, you're a good old school journalist. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I think they're still there, but it's, it's, I think, just getting harder. And maybe now with clickbait, um, I've heard terrible stories in publishing of literary editors being told to do certain books which are controversial rather than books which are important because they don't get the clickbait. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're moving away from the. Well, I think sort it's also more tribal. Culture. I mean, there are always left wing papers and right wing papers. I mean, that's not a new thing. Um, but now, especially with um, social media, but also certain 
talk, radio stations and TV stations really taking sides. You know, GB News has come to Britain, a very conservative right-wing view of the world. Um, and Australia Fox News um, and the Australian and all of those Murdoch-owned entities traditionally been on the right. And people on the left have tended to dislike them and not listen to their stories. And this, I'm going to try and play you this clip. This is about COVID. It came out a few days ago. Um, Australian journalist, Shari Markson, obviously not popular at the ABC where I used to work. Um, these are ABC reporters talking about her reporting on COVID and what they then thought about uh, looking back to 2020, how they should handle the story. Just take a listen and see, see if this is going to work. Amazingly, she is looking more and more like she's yeah, right. right. It's just annoying. I she's so unhinged. Yeah. She might still be right. And look, I would, yeah, I would definitely <laughs> say it's still definitely not resolved. She's still but... right. <laughs> it's looking How does she know it wasn't a bat? She doesn't. No one does. But it is the location is extremely suspicious. It's obviously, it's, yeah. I don't, I don't, you don't want to let the Chinese off the hook. I feel, I feel like I remember being super dismissive of that very early, not even very early on, for a good while. I was like, that is just the most unhinged thing ever. And I reckon it was, I was overly influenced by the fact that there were some truly nasty and crazy people who were already deep down the rabbit hole. I probably didn't look at it as passionately enough. It was very, it became um, weirdly ideological. Yeah, well, it just became very tricky. Well, sort of yeah. He sort of, he sort of well, even the attacks on Fauci and stuff. Yeah. It became very Trumpy, he said. And these are seriously important reporters for the ABC, where I was proud to work, um, uh, who affect the national, that country's understanding of COVID, a big, big story, pretty much admitting that they didn't want to pursue the lab leak theory because it was Trumpy. And also because a woman reporter at Fox News they didn't like was pursuing it. I mean, this is not on. It really shouldn't happen. I think this is sort of also an intolerance to other people's points of view. There's not the sort of open and, 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 and serious, sensible debate. People take positions and can't be moved from them. And I think one of the things that we try to do is to present often controversial subjects in a sort of measured way and to just probe and see what the reality is. Um, well, I, hope, I hope we do. We shouldn't get too holier than thou, I guess. No. Um, you know, uh, we're, but we can say what we like. We have our own, as it were, we're not exactly broadcasters, we're narrowcasters. Um, but, you know, nobody's controlling us. We don't have an editorial committee sitting over us. We don't have to impress any lawyers. Um, so Maybe. we're not free to do that. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's what people like. And I think they like the slightly haphazard nature of things we talk about and the new insights into stories people don't always know. But I think we're going to be dealing with some current affairs in the next few weeks, aren't we? I think we are going to address Trump. Um, yes, actually, next week, I think, if we, with a bit of luck, we're going to be talking to um, um, an expert in all things Trump and Biden. So we can talk about the two possible likely candidates for the next presidential election, one of whom might be in prison at the time, and the scandals that they're both facing, which is, I think will be really interesting. Yeah. And then the next week, we're going to, to Epstein, aren't we? Well, if we can get someone, it's very hard to get people to talk on Epstein who know anything. So I'm still working on that. Um, okay. So I'm keen to get absolutely the right person uh, to to who really will have new insights. There's a lot of material that gets regurgitated, not always accurate, accurate, 
uh, accurately. And I think it's important we find someone who really knows what's going on there. But a lot of interesting disclosures coming out um, from the banking side, from the material there. Yes. Um, also, I think we have a technical update. Not that either of us really understand what we're doing technically, but we've been asked to say, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, <clears throat> what's Stitcher? I don't know, but um, people are listening to us on Stitcher. If you are, it's going to be closing. Um, so basically, you'll have to find us somewhere else. I mean, we're on all the audio apps, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Chrome, Amazon Music, and lots. I've also not heard of like Deezer, Pandora. To ask our children what these things are. Exactly. Great. So, well, we've we've had our righteous indignation this week. Maybe we it'll, we'll have it, have some more next week. Who knows? Well, who knows what the hashtag will be next week? But for now, I'm enjoying Lowniegate. See you next <laughs> week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.